welcome everybody. Um, uh, this is Mark Gagan from The Voice of Insurance, and I'm here talking to David Flandro, who's the Managing Director of Analytics at Hyperion X. And David, you behind uh, Hyperion X's excellent uh, report on the 1-1 renewals. And of oh, course, thank you. you've had a long career working at most of the large brokers, uh, analysing reinsurance for probably about 20 years now. So you're one of my go-to guys for, for, for finding out what's really going on in the world of reinsurance. And so give us the overview. You've put out your report. Uh, it's mercifully sh- some shorter than some of the other ones. Yes. Um, yeah, so what's, what's the big picture from 20,000 feet? Well, from 20,000 feet, um, yeah, it is mercifully short. We wanted it to be brief because we wanted to just tell you the facts that we thought were most important rather than going into every detail. The other thing that I'll say is that the um, the report itself, we're, we're pretty happy about it because we've managed to use Hyperion X data to create um, these indices. And um, as you said, having, having done this for a number of years, uh, it's my view that this is the uh, remastered Sergeant Peppers, if you will. It's the, these are the best indices that, that I've ever seen or produced uh, in terms of their weighting and their risk adjustment, and particularly the, the casualty one we're pretty excited about at the end, where we show the, the daily changes. We've never been able to do that before, um, but it's something that we can do here at Hyperion X. But in terms of the big picture, sorry for the advertisement, in terms of the, the big picture, um, we saw reinsurance property catastrophe rates worldwide very slightly up, in our view, um, by 0.8%. And then the, the increase was bigger in North America. Uh, we, we thought it was around 2% in North America across um, all of the business there on average risk-adjusted. The action, though, was really in casualty and then in retrocession. So in casualty... And we were happy to confirm this with Hyperion X data. It matches our previous, more anecdotal view. Reinsurance uh, casualty rates online, when adjusted for seating commissions and exposure changes, were up by about 3%. As I said, the real action comes in retro, where on average worldwide we're up about 20%. And that um, that includes mainly non-marine retrocession markets uh, worldwide. There was a huge range around all of these numbers, obviously. So depending on loss experience, region, class of business specifically, there was you're going to have completely different outcomes. But these are our weighted averages worldwide. And then just stepping back more, the the really big picture is that you know property catastrophe reinsurance rates have in a very long-term context, basically been stable since 2015 within a range um, at a relatively low level. Uh, Whether that changes in future, we'll see. Obviously, April 1st and June 1st are going to be really important uh, this year. That's really interesting. So you're saying it's all in retro and casualty, but what about property catch? We get that out of the way because surely, um, you know, one would assume that property cat would have to have had some action, given that you've had we we had 2017, 2018, which combined are the worst two uh, cat years of all time, if if you add them together. So to f- actually worse than 2004, 2005, uh, and then we had, didn't didn't exactly escape scot free this year either, with the uh, with, with obviously with the uh, typhoons in Japan and right. and with Dorian as well. So what what was going on in the, what was going on in property cat then? Well, property cat was as you say differentiated so okay so so in um remember the, the the japan renewal is going to happen mainly on april 1st the proportion of premiums that are happening in peak risk asia pack at january 1st are relatively low but more broadly 
the United States uh, at January 1st acted a little bit differently from the rest of the world. So in the rest of the world, you saw property catastrophe rates. If you And again, you know, we're talking about highly differentiated markets here. If you look at Germany or Italy or Switzerland versus Indonesia uh, and the rest of Southeast Asia versus the Caribbean uh, versus peak risk Asia versus the United Kingdom versus the United States, you're going to see a big range of outcomes that really could be anywhere from, you know, down 15 percent to up 40 percent if you're talking about non-marine uh, retro cat XOL, right? So that's the first thing to, to realize. There's a really, really wide range. But I don't mean to, to obfuscate. Um, in the U.S., for nationwide covers, you know, we, we did see for loss-affected programs, um, property catastrophe rates up as much as 20%, but that's not risk-adjusted, okay? That's just premium being paid on the same program when it's loss-affected. When we risk adjust and look at loss free, you know your your increases uh, in a year when there weren't that many losses in terms of global insured property catastrophe losses. Remember, we're in the 50s, maybe up to 60 for the global insured property catastrophe, or sorry, global insured in uh, losses in 2019 versus an average of that's 76. So that's billion dollars. Right? That's billion dollars. And how me. how does that stack up against what is an average? Well, then an average these days could be as high as $76 billion. Um, so what I'm saying is that 2019 was, in fact, a below-average insured catastrophe loss year. In that context, um, maybe it's less surprising that property catastrophe rates didn't go up more. And frankly, you're right. This is the real takeaway for me. 2017 and 2018 were the largest insured catastrophe loss years ever in inflation-adjusted terms on a consecutive basis. As I just said, we've been in a range since 2015 where property, whether you think they were 0% or up 5%, it doesn't matter. We've been in a range since 2015 where rates have been pretty stable. And this is while we've had the largest insured consecutive property catastrophe loss years ever in 17 and 18. 19 was lower. But the question for me is, why haven't rates gone up more after those two huge consecutive loss years and all the trapped capital and everything else? Why haven't rates gone up by 30% like they did in 2005 or even more like they did in 1993? That's the interesting conundrum. So what's the answer then? (laughs) Well, for me, we do a lot of work and you'll see in the report, we do a lot of work on dedicated reinsurance capital. One of the answers is that if you just look at the numbers, if you try to calculate dedicated capital, you know, now versus the 1990s or the mid-2000s. It's up, right? It's high. It's, it's actually possibly down slightly, depending on how you measure it, depending on how you account for trapped capital in, at the end of 2019. It might be down slightly, but it's still at historically high levels. The premiums to surplus ratio of the sector, even though it's now higher than it's been since 2015, it's still far, far lower than it's been over the last 20 years. And so that just means that there's more capital in the market, given risks assumed, than there has been over the long-term average. And when you have an excess of capital, that does tend to dampen things quite a lot. And I think that is the main explainer of why rates haven't been more volatile since 2015. There's an abundance of capital. So it's just good old-fashioned supply and demand, uh, and you can't get away from that. Yes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there will be people who protest and say, wait a minute, in the ILS markets and in the collateralized markets, we've got trapped capital, and that's causing retro and DNF rates to go higher. And that's absolutely right. No doubt about it. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is the $275 billion of global reinsurance premiums that are written, including life reinsurance, 
and all of the dedicated capital that supports it. When you zoom out to 50,000 feet and look at that whole picture, you're going to see that there's more capital in the market than there's been for a long time, even though it might be slightly less than it was, say, at the beginning of 2017 relative to premiums. Let's talk about the trap capital then. And so was it in the, in the big picture, I suppose, in the small world of retro, I mean, retro is, it It fascinates us journalists a lot because it's so opaque and it moves around and yeah. it's kind of exciting. Yes. Um, but I suppose in the big, what you're saying really is in the big, when we're looking at everything from 20,000 feet, yes. retro is just a little backwater where stuff happens to people <laughs> and and it doesn't really matter. But of course, there, we did have proper price movement. But it's, of course. But it's not the market. I, I wouldn't call retro a backwater by any means. <laughs> I would say, so... The, the amount of the absolute amount of premium that goes into the retro market is small relative to global premiums for all reinsurance, certainly. But the amount of limit that the retro market uh, commands, if you will, and the importance of the changes at the margin in the retro market, that because at the margin is always where the action takes place, it is really important. So the changes in capital from, say, the end of 2018 to the end of 2019 were really important. At the end of 2018, it could have been estimated that there, you know, 20 plus billion of global dedicated reinsurance capital was trapped. Okay, and that that all was in collateralized securities and ILS. Um, that didn't go down as much as people would have thought at the end of 2019, because of development in uh, of certain storms. It it actually the mix of trapped capital we think changed a little bit. So in the cat bond market, where some capital was trapped at the end of 2018, less was trapped at the end of 2019, where in terms of private deals and collateralized structures, actually more was locked up for various reasons. And so the, the actual absolute amount of trapped capital didn't change too much. And that also drove some of the capacity constraints in the retro market. Was that partly because um, people were trapping capital a little bit more cautiously than they'd, they'd perhaps released some of it a little bit too early the first time around? Was that, was that part of it? One could say that. And then there were other things that came online where people were cautious, such as the Japanese typhoons. Right. So we've got plenty of capital. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, isolated areas where you know where supply had been withdrawn, and whether the trap capital did have an effect. Right. Um, what about the actual psychology of the you know the underwriters? What what has <clears throat> changed? What I would say, uh, you know, anecdotally, what people are telling me has changed in the marketplace is that the easy consensus, perhaps, that existed three or four or five years ago, where you could find a market clearing price and then you could place a, a, any program two hundred percent. Within about thirty seconds, right? Uh, is that that's not there anymore? Is, is that would it be right to say that, David? Absolutely, the market's changed fundamentally from three or four or five years ago. No and is doubt. that just people? And now, is that the psychology of the marketplace? Is is that just that's the will of senior management at, at uh, top firms? Uh, are they saying we are just not going to take this anymore? We're going to have to will this market harder by walking away from business. I don't think so. I think it's due to actual material factors. So when you go back, it may also be due to willpower. I don't know. But I can point to some serious material factors that will be affecting this. First, going back three or four or five years ago, remember, if you think about the years after Hurricane Sandy, 13, 14, 15, and 16, those were relatively low loss years in terms of global insured catastrophe losses. There were exceptions, but they were relatively low loss years. Also, during those years, we had nothing but reserve redundancies. When you average calendar year quarterly reserve redundancies, there was no single quarter during that entire period where reserves were deficient for the sector. 
and there I'm talking about the top 30 global PNC carriers, right? And then um, in 2017, that all started to change. Uh, 2017, largest insured catastrophe loss year on record. Oh, the other thing I forgot about from 13 to 16, obviously, the massive inflow of uh, alternative capital, as we called it then, or third-party capital into the sector. Tens of billions of dollars of alternative capital flowed into the sector, creating all that excess capacity that was just commonplace during that period. One of my competitors, for whom I have a lot of affection, used to call this the Groundhog Day market, where every year we would show up at Baden-Baden, we would talk about rates, and they would just go down by 5 or 10% at 1-1. That circumstance has changed materially, and it did change materially starting in 2017 with the very large record-breaking catastrophes, as well as 2018 with the lockup of capital in some of those collateralized structures, but then crucially with the change in the reserving picture. And this is also what's driving the change in casualty reinsurance rates. The fourth quarter of 2016 was the first time since the third quarter of 2005 that we've had net deficiencies for the top 30 global PNC carriers. In 2019, opinions are mixed, but we know that in the second quarter and the third quarter of 2019, we're very close to the line on a calendar year basis in terms of deficiencies. What that means, because of course, all these capital numbers that we're talking about, they are just assets minus liabilities, right? The insurance sector's biggest liability is reserves. So if we have reserves wrong, the capital numbers are wrong. So people might become less confident in those big capital numbers that I was talking about before. All of those dynamics are affecting um, psychology, as you put it, when people go to renew business. And there's there's more to it as well. There's willpower and there's just, you know, um, fear and greed. But all of that is affecting that. So there's nothing like, um, you know, uh, first of January, you, you, you say, I'm going to go to the gym more. But it'd be even better if the, if the doctor says you are obese and you must go to the gym otherwise you're going to die then that that gives you that does help with the willpower is that what you're saying are you, but, but, uh, no, is I'm over dramatizing but so that brings us quite nicely onto the casualty yeah. so right. so do you think it is it's been the casualty the slowly bubbling casualty reserving cycle or generally the reserving cycle as we know it we've been scratching our heads probably ever since about there was certainly a time about 2009, 2010, if you, we look at the same, if you look at a kind of your sine wave of a cycle, you think, surely at this point we were living on borrowed time, but we seem to have got an extra decade from somewhere. Yeah. And do you think now we're really, we're really, really there to the point where, um, you know, uh, it, this is what this is what's really driving the market? Do you, is that what, you, what you're saying? Um, that's a great point. And I, I think I'm on record back in 2009 or 2010 saying, this is the bottom. Um, well, you were, well yeah. it looked like it was, but then, you know, I think the effects of the global, perhaps it was the global financial crisis effects that changed everything. But I don't know. I don't know what it was, but we have had an extra decade of uh, and, and a probably more benign uh, loss experience uh, in casualty than we would have expected, I suppose. Is that what it is, David? Well, if you go back to the actually fourth quarter of 2007, accident year 2007, that was the absolute trough in terms of accident year. And in terms of calendar year, quarter, I think that the absolute trough was probably the second or third quarter of 2009. So that what does that mean? That just means that that was the, uh, the, the point in the cycle where we had the most reserve releases. Okay, that was the, it was, in fact, the bottom. What didn't happen, though, was what has happened in previous cycles where people then quickly began to under-reserve because... 
usually at that point in the cycle, people become overconfident because reserves are so redundant that they start to release reserves more quickly than they should, and then they get into trouble. The thing that time was that the previous deficiency cycle was so traumatic for the sector. If you go back to accident year 99, 2000, 2001, calendar years 2002 and 2003, we think that the sector as a whole lost over $300 billion in that reserving liability crisis. We think that because of that, there has just been an abundance of caution for many, many years, which has caused the redundancy cycle to last much longer than it normally does. But that now appears to be coming to an end. It's kind of akin to the financial crisis, because in the financial crisis in 2009, it was so acute that everybody thought, you know, this is over. Nobody's ever going to make money in equities again. And then we have an 11-year bull market. It's not different from the liability crisis, where the, you know, the liability crisis was so traumatic that actually people didn't get aggressive like they normally do after a big deficiency. Does this bode well, then, um, in that uh, we've been so cautious for so long? Uh, or was there a point a few years ago when we... Did that caution ever slip? Uh, so um, you, what you're saying is if, we, if we've been particularly um, cautious during the, the softer times, uh, then the harder times won't be so hard. Is that, is that true? I hope so. I, I mean, you know, I, I hope very much that we've become better at reserving over the long term. But as you say, if you look at the reserving cycle, if you can over 20 or even 30 years, it looks like a cosine wave. And that's because the sector as a whole tends to over-reserve and then under-reserve and then over-reserve and then under-reserve. And that's been the same for a really long time. And it's not because of modeling. I think that's because of psychology. So no, I don't think human nature but do you think it's just So that curve, that the troughs will be not as low and the uh, peaks won't be quite as high? They haven't been in the recent past, but I past performance does not indicate future results. And now, now that things are on the turn and that we're moving towards potential net deficiencies and reserves, and um, what I found interesting in your report, particularly interesting, was that actually you'd already noted that casualty reinsurance rates had started moving two or three years ago already. That's right. And I, I, don't, I managed to miss that, but uh, that, that's really interesting. It is interesting, and everybody uh, can miss this because, as you know, in the insurance sector, in particular the reinsurance sector, the information that we get is only periodical. We, we get it at best quarterly, but normally we just get renewal information. So you know what happens with casualty rates in detail, really once a year when there is a publication that happens, right? Actually, if you look at the publications from 2016, you will see casualty rates starting to turn year on year. Uh, for for example, for London Market Casualty, in one of the reports for one of the companies that I used to work for, right? You can see that happening. What you can't see is specificity around when it does happen, and that's because we don't in the in the insurance sector we don't have daily pricing data like we do in other capital markets. That is now changing. And we can see, um, and I'm going to show you a picture now, even though we're on a podcast, you can see in our report, this this is our casualty uh, reinsurance risk-adjusted pricing from 2015. It's a it's a daily update. It is a moving average, but it's based on so statistical sampling. So we've got a trough around the middle towards the end of uh, 2016. Of 2016. And then we're moving up. That's right. And that corresponds with what has been more widely reported at year-end renewals. The difference is we can see that happening, uh, and that that's the that's the really big breakthrough on this uh, on this particular rate online index. We've got daily pricing data, albeit uh, with a with a moving average. And we'll have links to the Hyperion X uh, uh, 
renewal report uh, to go along with the podcast. So uh, no need to worry on that score. I mean, this shouldn't be a huge surprise. It does correspond, again, with with the trend in quarterly calendar year reserving movements. So that it shouldn't surprise too much. But it's fun to be able to see it happening in real time. We just haven't been able to do that before. So let's yeah, let's talk specifically about the casualty reinsurance renewal. So it's, it's a, quite a lot of momentum building. Do you think this is something that's going to be year on year? Uh, we're starting we're starting a secular hardening trend in in casualty across the board. Yeah, uh, and it's not just reinsurance. Well, ca- casualty is a class. I have to be really careful here because I can hear my casualty broking friends telling me this. Well, there's a lot of it. Yeah, there's a lot of it, and it's highly, highly varied. So you're talking about everything from you know American Motor third party liability to German E and O, right? So that's that's really important to remember when you're talking about casualty broadly. And again, just like with property cat, there are varying uh, trends in different regions and everything else. But if you want to look at casualty as we're defining it, which includes, you know, Europe, ANZ, Asia-Pac, London market, uh, US, if you look at it and you kind of weight it and average it, casualty trends do tend to last longer um, and be less volatile in terms of pricing movements in the short term than property catastrophe. So from that point of view, we are seeing, we have seen something of a bottoming in casualty reinsurance in 15 and 16. The trend seems to be sustained and that does portend uh, more of a sustained trend than I would be able to say in property cat, which is more volatile. Again, it all depends on global reserving trends and reserving trends depend on broader macroeconomic factors like social inflation or regional legal factors like jury awards and, and that sort of thing. So we, we, we have to keep an eye out for what is causing the development because that's what will ultimately drive things. But right now the trend does seem to be sustained. And, and how much is that material uncertainty uh, into what, you know, uh, the back years uh, and which years are the ones that are really causing concern? Is it how far back are we going, uh, you know, in, into the book? Is it 14, 15, 16, uh, uh, 17, are these the ones that are starting to, because I suppose, uh, presumably, uh, from 16 onwards, uh, at least the rate was coming up to, to, to help sort of meet the increased loss expectations. We're looking at all of those. Actually, the ones that you mentioned, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are the, the years that we're looking at most closely. Before that, if you go back to 13, 12, and 11, like I said before, 7 seems to be the absolute trough. Eight and nine less redundant, but still very redundant and well developed. It's when you get past thirteen, obviously, that things become less certain, um, and we are seeing uh, some adverse development um, as recently as fourteen. You know, affecting that accident year to the point where it looks like it could still possibly move over into deficiency. The more recent accident years are obviously less certain, but it does look like some of that recent business may have been a little bit underpriced. Anecdotally, at the renewal, um, people were saying that um, this, you know, this is a point uh, we were talking before about uh, that the consensus having been broken, and this is a time, obviously, uh, looking at casualty reserving is a, is a, is a, is a very inexact science, and there's a of lot of uh, difference of opinion around how these things are going to develop. And yeah. uh, it seems to be that some reinsurers were were very unha- were unhappy and wanted to walk away. Yes, but others were running towards the uh, class again because they're getting the rate, mm-hmm. and that they seem to believe that. The rate of uh, uh, on this accident year basis is going to be good. That these are going to be good years. Twenty twenty is going to be a nice year when we look back at it. When twenty thirty, when you and I are having another podcast, David, we'll be saying, "Ah, oh, those vintage years of twenty twenty. <laughs> when are they going to come back?" 
Maybe. Uh, we'll see. It depends on a couple of things. It depends on the carrier's existing book and what type of a back book they already have in casualty lines, number one. It depends on the carrier's perception of current claims trends and how they might continue to develop, and that, that will vary carrier by carrier. Number two, and then it, you're right, it just depends on how much premium they want to put on the books at what rate. Now, the other thing I'll just say, this is really important, because, again, all of this casualty reserving analysis that we're looking at, going back to 2000, or 1998, really, on our chart, is based on quarterly, even when we do the, the very painstaking quarterly calendar year reserve or quarterly accounting year reserving analysis, right? That's based on looking at 10Ks, 10Qs, IFRS annual statements, presentations, press releases, all that stuff. You can get very detailed information, but it's always a quarter old and it's always backward looking. Accident year data are even more backward looking just by their nature. But what we're doing now, and this is so important, we have casualty claims indices, just like the pricing indices that also update daily. And we can see claims trends, again, on a rolling average basis, updating relatively close to real time. That, in and of itself, can inform the discussion around casualty. And you can find out what's happening with claims before the quarterly reporting. That, that's really important, and it's, it's something that we're trying to do here in Hyperion X. And I think that you're going to see more of that type of data in future, and that will change the discussion around reserving. If I had a couple of billion dollars uh, burning a hole in my pocket, David, and, and I would come to you first thing for, for some really good advice because oh, thank you. I respect your judgment and, and, and the fact that you're looking at all this data. So what would you what would your gut be with me if I said, look, why don't I I want to get into casualty reinsurance? There's going to be a shortfall here. I'm going to be um, yeah I'm going to be offered lots of really interesting participations on lots of really interesting uh, treaties. Should I should I go for it? Do you th would you what would you tell me? Would you say no? Wait, wait another couple of years, or would you say actually now is a pretty good time to get into casualty reinsurance? What would you say? I would. Well, I'm not a casualty underwriter, clearly. Okay, so there are people in the market who know this market far better than I do. But if just I, from an analytical perspective, from an analytical perspective, I would tell you to avoid the casualty lines of business that currently seem problematic because bad years always get worse. Right. And and even bad trends always get worse. But if you can be in a casualty or long tail line of business right now that is affected by the broader casualty trend that is affected by the, the rising tide, if you will, and you have a fairly clean back book in that same line of business, then it could represent an opportunity to be sure. So Absolutely. Come and see you later. Apps, please. Yes. Right. I really want to talk about something that's been uh, we've been thinking about a lot in the insurance press. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got we've got um, underlying primary insurance is correcting in certain parts of the world, certainly yes. in, in the US and, uh, you know, the biggest market in the world by miles. Uh, and also we've got um, much more expensive retro for, for, for all those different reasons we've just gone into. Yes. So. How are reinsurers feeling at the moment? Are they, are they feeling that they're missing out on some of this stuff? Uh, or And also, are they feeling squeezed? Mm -hmm. so, or are there winners and losers? And that's always the other question. We've got change. So uh, when there's change, there's usually winners and losers. But uh, are there, can we go into some of those dynamics? I think it's really interesting with reinsurers. Is some of them may be feeling a bit squeezed. Or is, or is that just me just you know what do you, what's the actual reality there one of the, well, I can I can go on about it as you know one of the realities to remember as before we have this question is that even though the, the retro market is going up now more than the reinsurance market but the retro market also fell faster and harder 
than the reinsurance market during the most recent cycle. So there is some correction or some reversion to the mean that's taking place, and that is one context to remember. Retro did get pretty cheap uh, a few years ago, no doubt about that. On the primary side, you're right, looking at property, casualty, marine, aviation, energy, lines of business, as we show here in our report from uh, September, most of those, li- all of those lines of business are going up uh, or were going up as of September of 2019. Reinsurance is a different story. So it, we, some people call it the, uh, the U-shaped uh, reinsurance pricing market or the, the reinsurance sandwich, and that, that certainly can be frustrating, no doubt about it. But there is now marginal increases that are happening in the reinsurance market as well. In terms of winners and losers, though, that's a really interesting question. And I would just say that if you are particularly in Europe, um, a reinsurer that was depending on very cheap retrocession three or four years ago to maintain a low cost of capital and underwrite more aggressively, uh, that is a difficult trade to make now with retro going up a lot. And if you're a bigger carrier with a bigger balance sheet, you're able to still make that trade where if you're a smaller carrier that was relying heavily on retro, that's becoming a bit more difficult for you, uh, particularly in the European region. So it's all about not being reliant. Yeah. I think I would like to ask you about looking forwards. Um, obviously, we've had a lot of property cat um, activity in, in Asia, particularly in Japan. Of course. What, um, you know, as we're now, you know, we've done with one one. we're looking forward uh, to the 1st of April. Yeah. Uh, next big renewal date in in the calendar, and obviously with a lot of action and activity, what what are you going to be preparing clients for if they're asking about what to expect at, uh, uh, in the first of April? What, what what's what's the outlook? Yeah, well, in our report, we, we, when we talk about property cat reinsurance in particular, we qualify it a little bit by saying that the the real action may be to come at 1st of April and 1st of June, because particularly the 1st of June is heavily dependent on um, the collateralized markets, let's just call them, where a lot of the trapped capital still exists. And then the 1st of April, clearly going to be affected by the Japanese typhoons. So those, uh, like last year in 2019, it's entirely possible that we will see more price action, particularly at uh, 1st of April and 1st of June. Does that represent a sustained trend? Um, I'm not sure, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But it, we're not expecting um, things to be particularly flat mid-year, if that's uh, your question. But it's, but you're really talking about loss-affected loss affected business, right? Those renewals are just more loss-affected than the amalgam of all renewals at January 1st, which is heavily weighted to European as well as US. Um, the position with the trap capital, what's your feel... Um, how much of it is going to get released uh, uh, before that time, before the before the middle of the year? How, have you got any kind of uh, ideas of what's going to roll off and be be released? I don't, because uh, last year it was relatively easy to predict, given the proportion of trapped capital that was in collateralized vis-a-vis uh, the cat bond market. Now it seems that most of the trapped capital is in the private and collateralized markets, so it's a more qualitative judgment. Um, and it's a less liquid market, so I've, I've not, I don't yet have a good answer to that. We just don't know what's going to happen, because, of course, it could be released and then be withdrawn. It's not for lack of trying. We've actually talked to many of the capital providers. We've talked to some of our peer analysts uh, at consulting firms who follow this. Um, it, it really just kind of depends on when the investors decide to uh, make a move. So that that's one of the key variables that's going to affect um, Florida, particularly. Would you say? I think so. That's, that's yeah. the thing we don't know that could happen in the next six months that would would affect that. Because if some of that trap capital became released mm-hmm. and wanted to continue to play, then it would soften that price action. 
That's right. And also, if third party, remember, um, there was a time three or four years ago when uh, consulting firms and certain brokerage firms were making the prediction that the entry of third party capital into the reinsurance sector would just be a straight line or even an exponential curve going on forever, right? What we said at the time was that it was going to be more like an S-curve, and that's what's happened. We're more we're getting to the top of that S-curve now in terms of investor appetite. But that being said, one really important thing to watch at the moment is the yield on cat bonds or the multiple on cat bonds. If that yield gets back up into the double digits and the multiple gets up around three or, or higher, that's still going to be very appetizing to, to new investors, and they're going to want to come in, and that could have a dampening effect. That seems to be the trend at the moment. So the multiple you talk about, that's the multiple of when you have an expected loss, say you expect that this would be a 1% yeah. loss, so you have a loss every 100 years, a total loss every 100 years, and but you're getting 3% rate, and that's your multiple. Yes, it, it might be more like 9 over 3, but yes. Yes. Okay, that's good. Uh, I'm not saying that cat bonds are all trading at 9% yields. I'm giving that no, 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 but purely just hypothetical that they're, example. They're, they're trading at three times there. Sure. You get a yield of three times what the expected loss. Of course, exactly. And who wouldn't want that? I'm, that's always sounds, but, but, but it brings me to my next question, because it's about trust, isn't it? If, yeah. Do you really believe that the underlying... Because we've had... Uh, um, it's an interesting renewal, I, I think, that... that had, do you think there's been a reassertion of fundamental values and reinsurance? We're always, always talking about relationships, about long-term relationships and how important they are. Yeah. Reinsurance is always talking about that. Um, yet, that does tend to be something that does have, you know, in softer markets, people are a bit more opportunistic. Uh, there are always buyers who are more opportunistic than others, uh, have different philosophy about how to use their reinsurance, and it's much more transactional. Mm-hmm. But do you think, has this been a renewal where, you know, relationships have been... That, that rewarded those long-term relationships, those who have invested in long-term relationships with their reinsurers and, and good communications with their reinsurers uh, and, and good loyalty to those reinsurers, have they been let off uh, with like, with lower increases than they would have otherwise have got and the more the more kind of flighty, in-and-out, transactional guys got got a, got a worse renewal? Is, is, that, is that a feel that you've had? I don't know if it's necessarily differentiated pricing on programs like that, but what it is is capacity. So, yes, I think that loyalty was uh, rewarded in many cases at this renewal with capacity. Uh, Relationships were uh, rewarded with capacity for some of the more difficult-to-place lines, no doubt about it. Um, it, it, In in my experience, it was more about capacity than it was differentiated pricing. But I'm, you know, listen, I'm not a placing broker there are probably placing brokers out there listening to this saying, you know, Flandra doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe maybe there was well, Everybody got an equal kicking and it doesn't matter because it's about <laughs> fundamentals. I, I don't think that's true. I think that actually uh, relationships were important this year in terms of uh, capacity. And what about, and, and the other side of relationship, of course, is trust. And again, after, we, if we get into a position of net reserve strengthening, mm-hmm. Uh, we've also had a lot of loss creep over the last couple of years. It seems, it seems like every property cat has become longer tail and produced some unmodeled stuff and also developed in slightly stranger ways yes. than before. It's become a bit more like casualty, so, so it seems, in Florida, you know, with the kind of plaintiff lawyers playing a really big role in what's happening. Right. Um, what about trust there? I mean, have reinsurers kept faith with the numbers or, or uh, again that, that and that's a big question for me because that's often a psychological factor where they suddenly they're seeing a renewal submission for the first that uh, they've seen every year for 10 years and, and but this year they're not really sure if can they believe the numbers because they keep getting worse mm-hmm. i think that we have to be very clear-eyed about this and realize that 
in the late 90s and in the mid-teens, let's say, reinsurance property catastrophe pricing, but also pricing across most lines, probably got below its long-term average. And that means that reinsurers worked very, very hard to give uh, insurers a good deal on premiums that were seeded. Um, But you're right, the trends, the long-term trends, both in terms of reserving uh, for longer tail lines and in terms of catastrophes for shorter tail lines, may be slightly underpriced, particularly if you're somebody who thinks about climate change. Um, If you take the famous chart that has insured catastrophe losses going back to 1970, and you convert it from real terms to nominal terms, which is what we do in our September report, and then you draw an exponential curve showing the increase in losses over time, that shows that a $300 billion loss year is not far away. And a $150 billion loss year is not actually that irregular. But the cap models seem to, um, if you if you just look at return periods for industry losses, they show that that type of a lost year is sort of way up in the at the high end. We don't think it is. We think that catastrophe risk is actually quite a bit bigger than maybe getting priced in at the macro level. So with that in mind, I, I do think that there is some scope for uh, change in the way risk is perceived. Just again to, to more specifics on that yes. with the three hundred billion. Um, yeah. what, what sort of um, return period are, are you estimating for that versus what do you think people are, are pricing for? It depends on how far into the future that you want to go, and it depends on your assumptions about inflation. But if you go out to twenty twenty four, it it wouldn't be an extremely high return period. I haven't calculated a number, but uh, you know. If you do that exercise that I just described and look at 2017, um, it is within the the standard deviation of the average over the long term. If you go back 40 years to 1970, one, one standard deviation. Yeah, so it's not that not that unlikely. No, and if you think about it, I mean, how how unusual really is it to have three hurricanes making landfall in the Atlantic Basin? It, it's unusual to be sure, but is it a one in 100 year event? No, of course it's not. And that's what—that's the discrepancy that we have to address. David, uh, we've been talking about in in, in in reasonable amount of generality about the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I want to ask you is, over the last fifteen to twenty years, perhaps all the time that I've been an insurance and reinsurance journalist, actually, we, we seem to have always had um, differentiation between the the main the three main uh, insurance territories: North America. Europe mm-hmm. and Asia, but you know, really talking about Japan, yes. particularly mm-hmm. the big insured value territories and the you know the big premium territories. Yes, and that they seem to have been fairly dislocated. Uh, now that we've got a changing market, uh, for, for say, for example, after KRW two thousand five renewal, um, you know, we didn't really see a huge. Uh, there, there was no shortage of capacity for European property CAD. It was pretty flat. Yet, you know, by comparison, yeah, and so we've had this some. Um, you know, the, 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 there seems to be the three reinsurance worlds. Is it, there's no sign of any of these these three worlds all coming together at some point. You, is there still a lot of differentiation between territories? There, there is, and if anything, I think that it may uh, have increased slightly uh, since the last time we had a capacity squeeze, um, which is not yet quite what we're having now, by the way. But I remember, um, I remember sitting at Benfield 
uh, back in 2006, I think it was, and watching that movie happening. And you're right, while the, the uh, pricing was definitely differentiated in terms of you know U.S. versus U.S. US versus Europe versus Asia Pac. What had happened at that point was that there was a big coalescence of events. It wasn't just KRW. It was, of course, the liability crisis. It was the three hurricanes prior to KRW, Charlie, Ivan, and Gene. Um, it was reinsurers going out of business. And then before that, it was 9-11 and the dot-com bust. So the coalescence of all of that stuff happening over a period of about four, four and a half years meant that there was pressure on capacity and capital. And if we had a similar coalescence now, I, I think that actually some of the global differentiation that you see now would um, would vanish. Not all of it, obviously. There would still be a lot of differentiation because there are strong regional factors. But don't forget, um, at the macro level, capacity and supply are fungible over uh, you know by region because these are global companies. So if we did get into a situation like that, we're not there yet where we had a coalescence of events and capital constraints, uh, I think that it could um, create uh, more global pricing. Yeah, so it all comes out of the same pot, but the pot is not empty enough yet not even, to be replenished by everybody. Oh, not even close. At the moment, by our calculation, even if you strip out all the cap, if you haircut our dedicated reinsurance capital figures for trapped capital and everything else, um, and even if you haircut them more for some deficiencies in reserving, we're still... Uh, far above where we were as recently as 2008, but then before that, 04, 03, and 02, and 01 particularly, we were uh, undercapitalized. We're nowhere near that now. I wanted to put put it over to you. We've been talking about really big picture stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any? There's a lot of interesting. Uh, we spoke about retro, but you know specific classes uh, within specialty that have been very interesting and of course you know so i just wanted to throw it open to you to say are there any particular little nuggets uh, little classes uh, of business uh, even if it's in a line of business in a specific territory or a line of business across the world that that you found particularly interesting at this renewal that you want to highlight well obviously caribbean business was uh, heavily loss affected and quite volatile that was that was interesting to watch. Um, but uh, like even there, I think that the market acted quite responsibly and capacity, uh, while not as forthcoming as in previous years, was still relatively plentiful. Um, casualty was was pretty, um, pretty varied, actually. So obviously, if you really want to get into the weeds, you could talk about UK motor liability business and the Ogden rate, which we all talk about. But also, uh, US motor liability was pretty heavily um, affected. Um, by general trends and, and third-party liability business in general in the United States in the reinsurance sector. Healthcare is interesting in the U.S. right now um, because of everything that's going on politically there, I think. Um, so I've, I found that personally interesting. Um, obviously, non-marine retro, uh, pretty interesting market to, to follow. We've talked quite a lot about that. Um Aviation? Trying, trying, aviation, clearly. <laughs> it's been... It's been um, in a downturn for a very, very long time. Uh, everything that's happened with Boeing last year uh, clearly seems to have uh, been the moment where the aviation market found some sort of a bottom, and that's uh, probably merited given the long, long-term decline in aviation rates that we've had. And I suppose that's a small market that has yes. to buy big limits, and then it just when you with you know when you lose a few players. That makes a big difference. Yes. So it moves quicker. Yeah, and don't forget um, the the movement in the uh, the airline broking space uh, may have had an effect on that as this well. Is personnel. 
probably not as in in the reinsurance market. Yes, possibly. And what about um, there was a contrast with that and and marine, which seems to be correcting on the primary side, but not it didn't seem to get the same uplift on the reinsurance side. There there would have been a small um, correction uh, prior to two thousand and twenty on the marine side, and I, I forgive me, I'm not really an expert here, but I. I have seen that dissipate over the last 18 months where we did get some rate prior to that. So I think it may just be uh, related to that, but you can tell I'm not an expert. Now, uh, unless there's anything else that uh, uh, you, you, you think we haven't spoken about, David, um, I'd like to thank you very much for, for speaking to the Voice of Insurance and being so enlightened. And I'll be uh, picking your brains on all sorts of other topics because I know you're an expert on many, many things, particularly on, on data, insure tech, and all that kind of stuff. Because I suppose Hyperion X is an insure tech. It is. And we'll be coming to speak to you again at many times throughout the year. But is there any, before we go, is there anything else you think we need to, we should have spoken about that we haven't spoken about? No, I just would say thank you for the uh, the advert there. And um, Hyperion X exists to bring data to the markets. So if I can help you or anybody listening uh, with data in the insurance marketplace or advisory, d.flandro at hyperion-x.com. Great. And and this is forward-looking data. This is, I think it's, um, yeah, I don't know how you're doing all this stuff. but I, I, Oh, I, think... I can tell you all about it, but it's, uh, it's all a bit technical. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, David, and we'll be speaking again soon. I'm, I'm certain of that. And thanks very much to everybody for listening. You've been listening to thevoiceofinsurance.com. This podcast was produced by Mark Gagan, with original music written by Anna Gagan. Thanks for listening.